Good morning, everyone. I feel like I need to kind of introduce myself again. I've been out. <laughs> I've been having a good time. I've been out and about on vacation, and I miss you all. I was here last Sunday, and I, man, I enjoyed that. Thank you, Phil Rankin, Rankin for putting that together. Um, that was beautiful. That's Psalms right there, the Word of God speaking to us in so many ways. I love it. Just a quick little uh, couple things, actually. One is uh, for the homegoing service, and that's what we're choosing to call it for Hal Cooper this coming Saturday. Uh, we're encouraging people to, for the lunch and afterward, to bring a salad or a dessert. We're expecting a pretty good-sized crowd, probably 300-plus for that. So uh, just we're all hands on deck, uh, salad and or dessert. Uh, for the lunch and following the going home service for Hal. That would be very helpful. Um, just a quick plug also for the uh, ministry fair that's been going on this month, uh, the tables back there. It just gives you an overview of all of the different ministries that happen here on a regular basis at CBC. Information, if you just want to find out about a ministry, there's the place to go. If you want to pray for a ministry, Sign up. That's wonderful. I love it. I see names already on the list. We need that. We need people praying regularly for all of our ministries here at Clackamas Bible Church. We do. And we also need people to work in the different ministries here at CBC. So I encourage you, if you're passionate about a particular ministry, there's the place to connect and to sign up and to jump in. Just jump in. Both feet. Do it. There's nothing like serving God in a ministry. You know, coming here and being in the fellowship is, all, is, a, is the intake of food that we need, and that's healthy, and we need that. But if all we do is intake food, guess what? Ministry is exercise. Ministry is putting into practice what I'm soaking in and taking in, and I'm giving it out in ministry. And so we really need both in our lives. And we've been given spiritual gifts and they're to be used for the kingdom of God, for His glory. So I encourage you to think about that. Visit the people that are back there at the tables. Find out more about what's going on. And here's what I find really sweet. And I've been talking to some of you about this ministry thing. It isn't necessarily, you can do ministry that isn't necessarily a part of what's back there. I was talking to a, a friend of mine just this last week, and he says, Ken, you know what my ministry is at CBC? It's I look around on Sunday morning, and I look for people that seem kind of on their own or disconnected or lonely or sad, and I purpose to sit next to them, in the pew next to them or in the area, and then talk to them and encourage them. That's a ministry. Um, how beautiful that is. I love that. Keep doing that, by the way. Um, that's one ministry. Here's another ministry that is kind of behind the scenes but is beautiful. TakeThemAMeal.com. Right now, there's people that we are ministering to through Take Them a Meal, the Cooper family being one of them, and others as they have health needs. It's a way that you can minister through food, preparing a meal and taking it to that person. And maybe it's in the taking it to that person that's the best part of it because you get to be with them, pray with them, encourage them, how's it going? Get to maybe meet them for the first time. So I just wanna encourage you to be a part of the ministry, FAIR and the ministries here at CBC. God has gifted each one of us uniquely. 
and put it into practice. I just want to encourage you to do that. Psalm 42 and 43 today. I'm going to explain why these two are really kind of one, but they are, and I'll explain that a little bit later, but I want to read Psalm 42 and 43 just to begin this morning. And Mark, thank you for doing that song, As the Deer Pants for Water. Yes, here's where it comes from, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, my, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Does this verse sound familiar? We'll come back to it. Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Should sound familiar. Then chapter 43. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. In your note taker, um, I listed some things just as introduction to this great pair of chapters that we are dealing with today. First of all, Psalm 42 is the beginning of a new book in the book of Psalms. Chapters 1 through 41 is book 1 in the book of Psalms. In fact, in some of your Bible, there's a bold book 2, maybe, right at the top of chapter 42. And we have finished book 1, and Phil preached Psalm 41 two Sundays ago, and it ended with this. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. There's a doxology at the end of each of these five books in the book of Psalms. 
and it marks the end of that book. And so we're picking it up in book two now in the book of Psalms with chapter 42. There's a note at the top of your chapter probably regarding the sons of Korah. It's the first time so far in the book of Psalms from chapter one to now where somebody other than David has been been given credit for being the author of the Psalms. Sons of Korah, who are these people? They are priests, and we learn about them in the book of 2 Chronicles that speaks of them, but they were in charge of music in the temple under the reign of David and later under Solomon, the sons of Korah. So the authorship of this chapter, and actually there are 11 of these in the book of Psalms, are handed over to the sons of Korah. We don't know a lot about them other than they were great musicians and they brought together the worship of God's people at the temple. Maskil, it's a maskil. What is that? Scholars kick this one around a little bit, but their best idea of what maskil means, it's a Hebrew verb meaning to make one wise or to instruct. So it's a psalm with the intention of giving us important information to instruct us, to make us wise. So there's something in the psalm that God wants us to hear. There's something that we need to be wise or for our instruction. There's something maybe you don't see, but that's I wanted to point out. It begins a section of psalms, starting in Psalm 42 to Psalm 83, that they refer to as the Elohistic Psalter. How's that for a, what? By that we mean the use of the name God in these chapters from Psalm 42 to 82 or 83. Instead of using the the name that we've been using, Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, which is Yahweh. That is the covenant God. That is the name that God gave Moses that the people of Israel were to call him by. Now there's a switch in these chapters from Yahweh, Lord, all caps, to God. Elohim is the word. It's the general word in the Old Testament that was used for God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator, he's the sustainer, he is the judge, he oversees the universe. He is the one true God. Elohim. What's interesting about Elohim also is that it's a grammatically plural title for God. Meaning, it opens up the, the and it, doesn't, it just introduces this idea of the Godhead, the three in one, the Trinity into God. For example, you go back into Genesis 1, 26, and it says, let us make man, as God speaking, It's Elohim here. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It's a plural form of the name of God. So this is the term that's gonna be used in this chapter for several chapters now. Elohim, a little bit different. So why do Psalm 42 and 43 go together? Most scholars feel like they do. Um, And it's important to note both in Old and New Testament that chapter divisions came much later. They were just written, like in the New Testament, most of them were letters, for example. And chapter divisions didn't come around until 
1400s, basically, and they started dividing in verse and chapter just to kind of help us have reference points. But most Hebrew manuscripts put these together as one psalm in the Hebrew manuscripts. And then it's interesting, if you look at Psalm 43, most of your Bible, there's nothing, there's no subtitles associated with Psalm 43. There's nothing that distinguishes Psalm 43 from 42. But I think probably the bigger argument is the one verse that's repeated three times in the two chapters, and maybe you caught it as we read it. It's in chapter 42, verse 5 and 11, and then it's the last verse in chapter 43. And it's the one verse, and it says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's repeated exact words three times in both chapters. And so that's the tie-in, I believe, that bring 42 and 43 together. There's kind of this flow, just looking at it. The first four verses in chapter 42 is very much lament. We've been talking about crying out to God, asking questions of God, saying, God, look, I'm not doing very well here, and why? A lot of whys, that's lament. So the first four verses there in 42, it's lament, and then there's that verse, verse five. Put your hope in God. Then, verses six through 10, lament. It's back to lament again. Then, verse 11, why, soul, are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? Put your hope in God. Then, beginning of 43, the first four verses, it's the same thing. Vindicate me. Rescue me. Save me. Help me. It's this crying out of lament, and then it ends with that beautiful verse, verse 5. Put your hope in God, my soul, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So there's that... You see this pattern in these two words, lament, and then there's this beautiful reminder, refrain to praise God and to put your hope in God. So overview-wise, just to give you an idea of where the, the psalmist is, he's in a world of hurt. Let me just summarize it with that. What's going on in his situation? Let me just give you some facts and I'll give you some verses to go with it. First of all, there's the enemies that are taunting him and being a thorn in his side. Look at verse three and 10 of chapter 42. It says, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Where's your God? There's this taunting that's going on by people, his enemies. Look at verse 10. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, there it is again, where is your God? It's beginning to affect him physically. It's like his bones are decaying inside of him. He's, he's sensing, he's just worn out, and he keeps getting this taunt from those that hate him, that hate God. Where is your God? He's being taunted. Chapter 43, verse 1, vindicate me, my God, plead my case against an unfaithful nation. So he's got his enemies against him. That's one thing, and maybe expected, and we've seen that in the Psalms, but what makes it even harder is that it feels like, it seems like God 
is against him. God's apparent absence. Look at verse 9 of 42. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? God, it's one thing for my enemy to taunt me, but it feels like you've forgotten me here. And then look at verse 2 of the next chapter. He says, you are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? He feels forgotten. He feels rejected by God. It's this apparent absence of God in his life. And it's tearing him apart. You know, one of the things as parents that happens uh, sometimes is we leave our kids behind at times, at certain places. Sometimes it's church. Maybe it's a restaurant. Maybe it's... And if you've been guilty of this, right here, I've, I've done this, okay? Where you get busy, you're not thinking, and you take off and then realize down the road, wherever you are, it's like, wait a minute, we're one short. <laughs> not a good situation. Jesus' own parents did that with him, did they not? They went to the temple and they left him behind. Now, there was a lot going. There was a big crowd there, probably, of people traveling with them, and they didn't realize that Jesus was not with them. So... I read a story, it was in one of the commentaries, and this pastor was confessing that he had left one of their children at church. We've done that, by the way. Here's the good news, though. When we used to live in the parsonage, it wasn't a long ways. <laughs> we just walked back over and grabbed him. But, um, so this commentator was talking about forgetting his child, and they were down the road a ways, and then they came to that terrible conclusion, you know, and they did the U-turn and went back to church, and they walked in and their child was sitting there in a chair, you know, just kind of waiting and, and tears were coming down their face. And this person went up to their child and the first thing the child said was, why did you forget me? It wasn't the, this is inconvenient or I'm here by myself. It was the whole feeling of, ouch, why did you forget me? That's how the psalmist is feeling. God, I'm your child, but it feels like you've forgotten me, like you've rejected me here. That's how I feel at this time. So he's got that going on, and then there's this separation from home and from the temple of God. Look at verses four and six of chapter 42. It says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one. He's recalling what used to be with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. There was this group of people and we would travel and worship and that isn't happening right now. He's away from home. He's away from the temple. Verse six. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers, they have swept over me. Now, we don't know what's going on. Why is he separated from the people and the temple and the worship of God? We don't know. Was it a personal choice? Was it being chased by his enemies? Maybe. What's, what's going on? But he finds himself separated from the temple worship down in Jerusalem 
and his people and his home, and he's in a place where he's away from all of that. It mentions Mount, Ta- it mentions Mount Hermon in there, and if you look at a map of Israel, and in their time, Mount Hermon, you're in, you're in the cheap seats. Let's just put it that way, as far as the land of Israel. So just, I should have put a map up there, I did not, but you have the Sea of Galilee up north, the Jordan River flowing down into the Dead Sea. That's the land of Israel, generally. Then if you look at a map, way up here, and in that, today it would be on the border of Lebanon and Syria, way up north, in the cheap seats, would be Mount Hermon. So he finds himself disconnected geographically from the land, the people, of Israel. What was he doing up there? Again, we don't know. Mount Hermon is the headwaters, the source of the Jordan River. And Mount Hermon is one of those mountains that's high in elevation, one of the few in that area of the world, in Israel specifically, that has snow on it and water cascading down. He mentions that in verse 7. He mentions deep calling out to deep. In my deepest part of my soul, I'm crying out to you, and he uses this image of water. I'm crying out to the deepness of God. And then he speaks of waterfalls. And that Mount Hermon would have a lot of waterfalls as the snow would be melting, and it would be coming down and forming the Jordan River. This idea of crashing water and waterfalls. Then he speaks of waves and breakers. It feels like there's just this big wave that's coming over me and I'm just being buried underneath. That's how I feel right now. So he's away, geographically away from his people, and more importantly, he's away from the temple where worship of God took place. And he's away from the throng. He mentions that in verse four. The joyful throng and the sounds and the celebration and the joy of being with the people as they would travel to worship God in Jerusalem. There's three Hebrew feasts or festivals where one would travel from their home to Jerusalem to worship. And in the book of Psalms, there's a group of, we call them the Psalm of Ascents. I mentioned this before, Psalm 120 to 134. They're called the Psalms of Ascents. The idea is you're, you're journeying from your homeland to Jerusalem and you're going up because Jerusalem is up on a hill and the temple is up on a hill. You're ascending together to worship God. There were three festivals where you would do that. Passover would be one, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and then the third one is the the Feast of Tabernacles, three times a year where the people of Israel would travel together in the throngs and worship God in Jerusalem, and he can't partake in that. He's away from that. So he's got all this going on externally enemies, the feeling that God has rejected him. He's distant from the temple and the worship of his people, but there's inward stuff that's going on. There's internal emotions that he talks about. Look at verse three. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me all day long, where's your God? He's feeling this grief, incredible sadness. Um, It's like all I have to eat is my tears. I, can't, I don't have an appetite here. I'm not even hungry because I'm so down. Look at verse five. He describes it, downcast. Why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Downcast meaning stoop down. 
It's this idea of you're just depressed in spirit. Instead of standing upright and feeling good, you're just, you're bent over. You just feel like you're beat. Then there's the disturbed image. That's the agitation and turbulence that's inside your heart. All that's churning in there. You feel you're downcast, you're disturbed. And then verse nine, if that's not enough, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? That word mourning is the root word for darkness. There's this darkness of my soul, deep depression. So all this is going on internally inside the psalmist. So what do we do in these situations? Have you ever found yourself in maybe this situation? You're so down, literally you can't even eat. You're away from, maybe you're away from friends and family and away from your church where you go for regular worship. Maybe there's just people speaking into your life and taunting you, saying things about you and your God. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you just needed some help? That's really the situation the psalmist is talking about. And I think in this chapter, there's some advice and there's some things we can learn about what to do when you find yourself in that situation. So I have six ways from this passage of dealing with these dark times of depression. The first one is the psalmist thirsts for God, verse 1 and 2. It says, the picture is beautiful. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? I just can't get enough. I'm, I'm desiring God so much. And he uses this beautiful image of the deer panting for water. In Scripture, we have these creation teaching tools. Uh, I think of in the book of Proverbs. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Go check out the ant. Just watch in creation. Watch what the ant does. Have you ever done that? Just the other day, I was somewhere, and there was a bunch of ants. It kind of creeps. I don't really like ants. I'll be honest, especially when they're in my house. I really don't like ants. They're busy, incredibly busy. And what is amazing about ants is how organized they are, too. They're always in a line going somewhere, right? They get things done, and if you study them, you learn about how strong they are. They can lift things several times their own weight. and It's incredible. You can learn from ants. The psalmist here says maybe he was out near Mount Hermon one night, and as the deer came down to the water to get a drink, as deer do, he just watched. And this deer was drinking, and, and it, it's like you could see his ribs going in and out. He's just thirsting, and he's sucking up this water. He's so thirsty. He needs that water. And the psalmist says, just like that deer needs that water desperately, I need God in my life. It isn't, I need deliverance. I'm not thirsty for deliverance from my enemies, although that would be great. I'm not thirsty to get back home, although yes, that would be great. I'm thirsty for God. That's where it starts. My situation is one thing. I need God. Where can I go to meet with God? And that line is literally what he's saying there, and the literal translation of that verse is, where can I go and see the face of God? Where can I go 
and not just meet with him, but actually see the face of God. It's a beautiful Hebrew word there. And we're going to see this idea of the face of God at the end. I'm going to bring it around, but I want to be where the face of God is. What do we thirst for? Have you ever thought about that? Do we thirst for God? Do we thirst to know him? Do we thirst to get into the word of God? Do we thirst to be around the people of God and to worship? Sometimes, to be honest with you, I don't have that. There's times where I get up and I'm like, I'm, I'm okay, God. I'll just kind of go about this day on my own. I'm good. Thank you very much. I like you. I love you, God, but I'm good. We need to thirst for God. That's where it starts. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6. It all starts with this hungering and thirst. Blessed, happy, fulfilled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And that's the first of the Beatitudes. It needs to start there. Thirst, hunger and thirst. So the psalmist thirsts for God. He just desires to be around the people of God, the word of God, and God himself. I absolutely love Psalm 119. Did you catch, as it was read last Sunday, all the different words for God's word? I, I wrote them down as they were reading it in that beautiful theater. Here's the words that were used for God's word. Laws, decrees, statutes, your words, your promises, your precepts, your commands, your ways. All of those words related to God's word right here. And each of them brings out something kind of unique. Precepts, statutes, laws, word, promises, commands. Each of them is a little bit different look at what this great book is. I love that. That's what we need to be thirsty about. So we're thirsty. We need thirst for God. We need to remember. He remembers God. Look at verse 4. I'm in a world of hurt. Verses 1 through 3. Day and night. Tears. Okay, so what does he do? These things I remember as I just pour out my soul to you, God. I remember these things. The word remember, as it's used in the Hebrew world, in the Old Testament, it's used 350 times or more, this idea of remembering. It's not just a recalling and going, oh yeah, I remember, you know, I remember that in my mind. Remembering is an action word. God remembered his people, and he acted. Delivered them, destroyed the enemy, did something, provided manna. So this word remember is an action. He says, I remember. So what does he remember? Verse 4, he remembers the past times of worship. I remember those times, past worship experience, remembering how God was in the communal worship of his people as they were together. This joy, shouts of joy and praise in verse four, festive throng, all those things. I'm recalling how beautiful that was and how much I miss it. I miss being with the people of God right now, okay? But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse six. He remembers the past experience, but he remembers 
Even more importantly, he remembers God. My soul is downcast. Therefore, I'm going to remember you, God. Sometimes I think, you know, recalling the good old days is good and maybe can be helpful, but maybe there's times where recalling the good old days isn't enough. In fact, maybe recalling the good old days just creates more of a, oh, oh man, that's hard. So what do you do? Remember God in the middle of all this. The good old days were the good old days, okay? They're past. But God is eternal. God is always with me. We need him. So we're remembering God, not just recalling the good old days. I heard this quote one time, and I thought it was helpful to me. It says, never forget in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Never forget in the dark what you know to be true in the light. What does that mean? It means sometimes in the dark, it's going to feel like God isn't there. It's going to feel like God's forsaken you. God's forgotten you. Feel like everybody's against you. Feels like you're no longer a child of God. You know, all these feelings that come into our heart. We need to remember in the light, in the light of day, to rethink who God is, his love for us, the fact that God is faithful. He doesn't forsake us. God is always there, and recall those things in the light. It feels like God has forgotten me, but I know he's faithful. It feels like everybody else is winning except for me, but I know that God's sovereign, and he's in control, and he's in charge. So remember, we thirst for God, we remember God, and then preaching to his own soul. This is the refrain that occurs in verse 5 and 11, and then at the end of chapter 43, It's this preaching to yourself. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's talking to himself. And then he says, put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Why, why, why are you downcast? He's talking to himself. And what I want you to see in these verses is this idea of listening to ourselves versus talking to ourselves. Often we listen to voices in ourself, to things like you're worthless, or it's not gonna work, or God doesn't really care about you, or you know, just give in, it doesn't really matter to that temptation. It isn't really that big a deal. We listen to these voices. What we need to be doing is talking to ourselves scripturally. We need to talk to ourselves versus just listening to ourselves. This is what he's doing here. He's talking to himself. He's telling himself, look, hope in God. There's gonna come a day where I'll worship again. Put your faith back in God. In spite of all the things that are circling around there and I'm listening to, I'm gonna talk to myself, the words of God into my own life. There's a great teacher, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a teacher over in England and he was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, a great theologian, speaker, and he, he, I came across this, and I just thought it was so good, so I wanted to read it to you, and I think if you could shoot it up there, I think we have a PowerPoint of this, too, as I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah there it is. Thank you. It says, if you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself, 
Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself. Now this man's treatment, he's talking about in Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And he speaks to himself. Have hope in God. I will yet praise him, for he is my Savior and my God. Speaking to ourselves versus just listening to these voices that want to speak things into our lives that are not good. On that side of the cross, that's what David did. On this side of the cross, we have the gospel. Martin Luther had the famous quote, he says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. What, is the, what, do, what does he mean by that? The fact that apart from God and his grace, I would be lost. I need to remember that. Instead of looking down on my nose at people that don't know God, I need to recall and remember, you know what? Apart from God, that would be me. I'm no better off than them. However, because of God's grace and the death of Christ on the cross, I am his child, I am his, and I will forever be his. That's what I need to preach to myself every day. That's the gospel. Because it's easy to lose sight of who I was before Christ and start thinking of others as, oh, what's what's their issue? or thinking of myself as better than them. But for the grace of God, that would be me, right? Preach the gospel. And then on the other side, to realize who I am in Christ, my identity, I'm his child, and I forever will be. So as I talk to myself, it might sound something like this. God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, How will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring any charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the very right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Romans 8, right? Sound familiar? That's the kind of thing we need to be talking and preaching to ourselves every day. He's a part of our lives. He's with us. Don't forget that. Last Tuesday, Steve Jeffrey and I um, went over to the Cooper home, and I just want to say thank you to our church for your incredibly generous gift to the Cooper family. Basically, all, when it was all collected, it came out to be about $6,500 just given to them. Then there were cards of encouragement. And so Steve Jeffrey and I went over there Tuesday morning just to deliver the gift from you to them and to check in with Hal to see how he was doing. At that time, he was not doing very well. He sat down next to his bed, and he was unconscious, most of the time breathing, but you know, just sleeping. Um, And we sat alongside the bed and spoke words of encouragement to him. And 
I told him, thank you, Hal, for your blog. The blog that I was referring to, maybe you're aware of it, but Hal and Chelsea, and I think with some help from Brian and Karen too, they've posted a blog, it's called Hupomene. Hupomene. That's a Greek word, hard to, hard to say, hard to pronounce, but here's what it means. It means cheerful or hopeful endurance. That's the word, it's a Greek word, and there's a blog out there, and he posted on there just kind of an introduction to Psalms. What is Psalms? And then he put a question out, and he says, what Psalm has really meant something to you? And some people had responded on there by just quoting some verses from different Psalms that meant something for them. So as I was standing by the bedside, I said, Hal, I want to read you a verse that means something to me, and I'm going to be preaching about it on Sunday. And it was, verse, it was that refrain, verse 5, verse 11, and verse 5 of chapter 43. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you disturbed? Put your hope in God. For we will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I said, Hal, just know your hope is in God. That's the great thing. We hold on to that, brother. So we, we got ready to leave, Steve and I, and his eyes opened. And we were able to go, kind of go back in and just say a quick word of encouragement face-to-face with Hal. It was pretty special. Put your hope in God. That's my word. Preach to your own soul. I love what he does in verse 8. He does two things. He affirms God's love and he sings a prayer. Look at verse 8. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, the Lord gives me a song, a prayer to the God of my life. First, in, at day, it's love. This word love is that beautiful Hebrew word hesed. Covenant, faithful. It's God's promised love to each one of us. And he does something interesting. It's a steadfast covenant love. But he does something interesting. It's not love God. It's love Lord, all caps, which is going back to the covenant guys, Yahweh. So he, re, he reverts back just this one time in this chapter to use the word Yahweh. The two go together. When you talk about God's covenant love, Yahweh goes with it. The two are connected because Yahweh is the covenant God. He's the promise keeper. He's the one who's faithful. You can't separate the two. So it's, I find it interesting that it's the one time in these two chapters where Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, Yahweh, that's, God, that's my God. He's the covenant maker. And I love that. We're in a covenant with God in his grace. We're his, we'll always be his. Joshua 1.5. This is God's word to Joshua as he was beginning the process of leading his people into the promised land. And he says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses. I'm going to be with you. You know how important it was for Joshua to hear that. And then he said this, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you. That verse is quoted again in the book of Hebrews, by the way. I believe it's chapter 12 of Hebrews. It 
quotes that verse, connecting really the truth of God's word all the way through from Old New Testament all the way through eternity, I will never leave you, forsake you. 1 John 3, 1 says, behold what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his children. Just as lavished. And then I love this in the NIV, it's, and such we are, exclamation point. That's who we are and will always be, his children. So we affirm God's love. It feels like I'm forgotten, God. It feels like you've forsaken me, but I know it's not true. I'm gonna affirm your covenant, promised, faithful, steadfast love to me. Then, at night, there's this song, this prayer. He sings a prayer to God, and most of the scholars said it's probably this very psalm that we're reading right now, very possibly. It's music, this poem, this psalm. Here it is. This is what I'm saying at night to you. It's not a prayer of joy and deliverance, but it's a prayer of pleading. The God of my life, I need, I need you right now. This prayer song does not take away suffering or darkness, but it does turn his heart to God. It's that beginning stage of looking towards God and turning his heart. It's a song of hope. It's a song of faith. And then I find this interesting. I wanted to, the sixth thing, and I think this is important. That's why I wanted to include it. He asks God why. Verse 9 and 10. Look what he says there. I say to God my rock, why? Why have you forgotten me? Why? Well, must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Why, God? Verse 10, my, ho- my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? There's this idea, it's okay, and it's good to say, God, why? This is the nature of the lament psalms, which make up about a third of the psalms. They are a huge section. We can't just overlook them, they're important. It's good and okay to ask why. How long? That was another question that David would would ask of God. How long, Lord, will my enemies keep winning? How long am I gonna be in this situation? It's okay to ask these questions. Sometimes in the midst of extreme emotions and difficulty, our words can be, maybe we're not as careful as such were the words. Maybe we're not as... um, theologically sound with our words even? Let me give you an example from Job 25 and 26. Sometimes when we speak out of just the emotion of a heart, it sounds like this. This is in Job and and he's in the situation where he is in a world of hurt and he's surrounded by his friends who are at some times helpful, at other times not so much. That's a fair thing to say of his friends. Yes, a little bit of both, so here's what he says. How painful are honest words. But what do your arguments prove? He's speaking to his friends. Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? He's saying, look, I'm just, I'm speaking from my heart here. These are desperate words. And they might feel like wind right now. And, and, you know, I know who God is, but sometimes my desperate words come out. I'm lamenting, I'm, I'm, Pouring my heart out, pouring my soul out to God. These are desperate words. It's okay to ask questions, but I think it's important that we are 
respectful with God, and that we understand and go back to the truth of his word. There's times where we struggle with that, but at the end of the day, we respect him. Complaining, criticizing. Complaining is, I feel this way, God. Why? How long? That's complaining, I feel. Criticism is, God, you always, you never, you, 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 critical. Complaining is one thing, and it's actually helpful because I'm communicating how I feel. I'm being open about what's going on in my heart. Criticizing is a whole different thing. It's pointing a finger at someone and their character, and that is not what we're talking about here. He's complaining to God. I feel this way, God. Look at verses one and two. There's gonna be this turning point, and I'm gonna read the first four verses of chapter 43 and kind of see where it starts. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Now look at verse three. There's kind of this, all of a sudden there's a turning point. Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Verses one and two, me, me, me. It's about, you know, he's still kind of focusing on his lament, what's going on in his life, and it's hard. And verse three, it shifts to God, and his focus shifts off his situation to the creator, to God who is, and he says, I see, God, that you are sending me your light and your faithful care, that you're in this. There's this turning point of going from lament to praise, and it's a beautiful ending to this section and to this passage, and then he ends with that verse, that refrain, how long, O soul, Will you be down? How long will you be? Put your hope in God because I am going to worship him. In conclusion, I wanted to point this out, and this is something I did not see until I was, as I was studying, some commentators made mention of this, and I thought this is profound. And so I have it up here. I have it in your note taker because it's, I wanted to guide you through it. It's this idea of the face of God. We see it in this passage. When shall I come and see his face? That's verse two. It's literally, this idea of worship is, his desire, it's there and it's in the Hebrew. I wanna see his face. Remember when Moses asked God, can I see your glory? He's up on the mountain. And the Lord allowed him to see a portion of his glory, but it says in that passage, he did not allow him to see his face. Something was going on there about the face of God. Psalm 42, five, the last line of that verse, my Savior, my God, is better, maybe better translated, and some of the commentators were like, I don't know why the English translators didn't catch this or why they didn't go with this, but they actually, the last line, instead of my Savior, my God, literally reading is, for the salvation of his face, 
or for the help of his countenance. It brings us again this idea of his face into it. God's face, what does that even mean? Well, it means God's favor. He turns towards you and shows you his attention and his favor into your life. Where do we see God's face now? In Christ. There's two verses that kind of bring this out. John, one's in the book of John, Jesus speaking, John 14, 9. Jesus answered, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been among you so long, anyone who has seen me, he's seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Then Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Where is it? Displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of God, the face of Jesus Christ. God's favor, God's grace. There's this beautiful picture of how God's face to us is shown through his grace. It's through the gospel. It's through the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the fact that he is with the Father at his right hand. We can know God. We can experience his favor, his grace in our lives through Jesus Christ. But there's something very interesting. The next two refrains, that verse that's repeated Instead of my Savior, my God, the literal reading now is for the salvation of my face, for the health of my countenance. So it goes from salvation of his face in verse five to my face. I find that kind of interesting. Knowing God, being in relationship with him, his face bringing healing to my face. Being in relationship to him, brings health, salvation to me. Where does our hope rest? Ultimately, it rests in the face of God. That's where we need to go to find hope. Nowhere else. That face is God's favor, God's grace in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love this, how this ultimately, if you think about the face of God, Ultimately, we know from Scripture the promise is we're going to see him face-to-face in heaven. That's our promise. That's our hope. Dick Johnson, Hal Cooper, many of those who have come before, face of God, right? They're living the hope. They're seeing it. Um, It's a reality. That's where it is, this face of God. In conclusion, I wanted to read number six, verses 24 to 26, as a benediction. Would you please stand? And I'm gonna ask Jeff Weiss to come forward to do the communion. Think about the face of God as I read the high priestly prayer that would be prayed over the people of Israel by Aaron and his sons. Number six, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The face of God, that's our hope today, amen.